Welcome back to SideQuest, episode 48, The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, episode two. Back with me is my esteemed colleague after a short respite, Easter respite, Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back, Wes. How you doing? Hey, good to be back. And yeah, it was great. Great having Easter off, but it's, yeah, good to be back and talking again with you. I totally agree. I enjoyed having the time off and getting to clean out some of my sort of, uh, action patterns that I developed during the course of war during the semester teaching and getting to sort of clean up and return to a simpler existence while I was in Fiji stand-up paddleboarding and snorkeling and seeing sea turtles and black tip and white tip sharks. It was very cool. But I too am itching to get back into the saddle and uh, get moving forward. So speaking of, for this time, I think we we agreed to talk after finishing our initial stint in Clocktown about going through the Southern Swamp and the Woodfall Temple. So we've met several new characters. We, uh, we've gone through our first major puzzle uh, and major labyrinth, maze, there we go, and fought our first big boss and, with a couple minor bosses. And I also, too, had to restart the game when I was at the boss uh, oh, no. at at the boss door with the boss key because I only had five minutes left because I didn't play the song of the inverted song of time quickly enough in order to slow down time. And it just took me time to figure things out, even with a walkthrough by Thonky. Uh, this game is, this game is tough and I can see why it was tough for me as a kid. And I, I actually am far more impressed by kids, even though these days telling somebody that I did something hard, like playing Zelda might sound sort of dorky or like a joke to them. It's like, I do do rather difficult things during the course of a day. Like I do teach Dante. I do teach Homer and Virgil, Virgil right now. I do do, you know, fairly difficult CrossFit workouts. And this is still pretty hard, even though not as physically grueling. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard in its own way. I mean, and you see this, if you ever like have somebody who's um, new to video games it can be a overwhelming challenge to to put yes. a game in their hands. Um, whereas for a kid who's, you know, playing them all the time, it's it's super easy, you know, but then you you, you look at their performance on any of a, an array of other activities or tasks and, you know, the, the adult will easily outperform the kid on most of them, right? It's It's so interesting to see, like, how different people's strengths manifest in different ways. And, um, yeah, and how play is its own kind of, challenge for sure and now i sort of am that parent sort of figure because this is not the i did play the ocarina of time and beat it but i did not play majora's mask so this is my first time going through this so instead of sort of a nostalgia fest like we had with final fantasy 7 where i was very comfortable at the helm and could sort of sit back and rest on my laurels knowing how to get through that game everything is new to me and so like i was telling you in the pre-show i or maybe i just mentioned that here i i got to the boss you know, I spent several hours getting the necessary, you know, uh, going through the puzzle and hitting the necessary points and doing, you know, the, the 30 or 40 things in order you have to do in this game while figuring things out in order to get to the boss um, um, uh, battle. And then I ran out of time and had to do it all over again. Um, and that, you know, that was tough, but it took some time and I, I burned the midnight oil doing that, which is, is funny, would seem like something you would do perhaps on the weekend, just to unwind, but was definitely, definitely felt like work at that time. Um, so it's a very different experience playing this game, not only because of the gameplay being different and being constrained by time, but also because I am sort of that old fogey who's trying to muddle through uh, a game at this point. And um, well, <laughs> I suppose it'll only get harder. But you were saying you were saying that um, you have a friend, Mr. Ben Kozlowski, who I think you had on your show once to talk about Earthbound, and that he he had heard our first recording and had some took some interest in it and had some notes for us that you wanted yeah. to bring up. Yeah, and he wrote back a really great uh, reply on Messenger. So I'll just read a little bit of, uh, of it each time that we meet until we can get him on here. He's finishing up the semester, too, and uh, has a lot going on. But he did sit down and wrote, okay, so um, that he would definitely especially like to be on for the uh, Ikana and Stone Tower section of the game, which is one of the later parts. Okay. Um, so we'll uh, hold him to that. His thoughts on the first episode. So the first thing he touched on, or rather, we touched on the themes of death and identity, which are probably the two biggest and most substantial in the game. But I'd also point out the theme of alienation. 
You mentioned in passing that Link is disconnected from his own body, rendered powerless. I think, though, there's an additional layer here beyond powerlessness. When Link wears his various masks, he is frequently judged or discriminated against. The guards won't let a child leave the town because it's unsafe, even while the town rulers argue that the town is unsafe in the mayor's office. Only when you return with a sword do they reconsider your request. Likewise, many of the characters won't respond to your requests unless you are a scrub or a Goron or a Zora or a human. This same Deku merchant who you barter with to get into the clock tower as a scrub will only sell stuff to you when you're a boy. The bombers tell you straight out that you aren't allowed to be a member of the gang. No scrubs, they shout. The organ grinder wants to tell you his story, but will only do it to a fellow human. He won't give you the Bremen mask as a scrub. There are multiple games to play in town, but most shopkeepers will turn you away as a scrub. Only the other Deku by the Great Fairy will let you play. And interestingly, if you win their game on all three days, they hand over a piece of heart, but chastise you for deceiving them. They wouldn't have let you play if they'd known you were a quote-unquote expert. Worst of all, the dog in the southern district will literally attack and damage you as a scrub, making the whole area perilous. As Link, it is indifferent, I think it's the Goron or Zora mask that makes it follow you around loyally. And you don't want to be a scrub either. You were trapped like this. Some of that functions as tutorial, limiting your power until you're familiar with the town geography and the mechanics, but the resonance is deep. Later, once you get to the southern swamp, you won't be allowed into certain areas unless you are a scrub. The racism cuts both ways. The masks certainly offer you physical powers, blowing bubbles or rolling fast, but they also grant you social powers as well. The girl at the treasure box shop flirts with you when you're a Goron and will even give you a piece of heart if you win the game, the only really worthwhile prize. This is especially important because it defines the Skull Kid as well. He too only wanted acceptance and friendship. He too was kicked out of the bombers and was shouted at by the astronomer, but I will come back to him. And we see that, right? When we uh, come to the, the gateway to the Southern Swamp area, there's a little cutscene. Yes with the, uh, the drawing there. So yeah, what did you think? Yeah, there are three things I wanted to say there. I was going to draw a connection between um, Link and his estrangement and alienation and also the figure of Lucifer, the sort of devil mask covered um, uh, antagonist in this game, the, the masked boy. Uh, what, what is the name of our masked antagonist again? Uh, Skull Kid, right? Mm -hmm, yes, mm -hmm. again, that connection to life and death. And again, um, I think we see uh, several connections to death in this Woodfall Temple, too, where we actually literally fight against evil amorphous demons in the dark. Um, and um, so, A, I, I think that's fantastic what Ben wrote. I, um, and I, I totally agree. Um, I would say that there is a parallel drawn between Link and being estranged as well as Skull Kid, and also the differing ways that you can deal with being estranged in the same way that Harry Potter in the series we're talking about with Sarah right now is estranged, but deals with his estrangement in a different way from Tom, uh, Tom Riddle, Voldemort. And then we see again that sort of archetypal contrast between people get dealt poor hands or have to deal with being um, belittled or made outcasts, and they deal with that in different ways. And I would make, I, I would say a stronger case than, I would say that the the estrangement and alienation goes much deeper than what we call racism these days, because obviously that's the major theme of the Odyssey as well. There's a major connection between putting on masks here <coughs> in Zelda and Odysseus often be portraying himself as different from he is, in particular when he gets to Ithaca and portrays himself as a beggar and is unseen, is sight unseen by those who know him. And in fact, when he gets to Scoria, earlier before that a sort of magical divine island where sort of angelic people who sing and dance live he uh he he it is said by alkanoas no man is just born from a, you know rocks and streams or rocks and trees you must have some name so the the idea of estrangement is big and also in dante and of course in virgil's aeneid that i write about uh the trojans are themselves estranged from their own identity and have to build a new one in the aeneid and dante is of course literally um actually estranged and the events that follow two years after the text of the Divine Comedy. So, so what I think is very even stronger than what is simply in the words that Ben gave is the notion that what Link seems to be doing is gathering the perspectives, like, like in Dante's Sphere of the Sun, where St. Thomas Aquinas, who's a Dominican, talks about the Franciscan perspective of Bonaventure. Bonaventure, who's a Dominican monk, talks about the Franciscan perspective of, uh, or excuse me, vice versa, who is a Franciscan monk, talks about the Dominican perspective of Thomas Aquinas. What Link is doing, 
opposite from these people who are showing their obvious limitations and prejudices is he's acquiring information from them. He's taking on the perspectives of these other people, then being treated like them in order to receive real experience as them. He's actually walking in their shoes. The shoe is on the other foot. And through that, he he gains experience. And so what's interesting is that we as as um, as the players of this game, we don't gain experience in the same way as in a traditional RPG. In the traditional RPG, your character literally gains experience and becomes stronger, but we gain experience through actual experiences in the game, and we learn that some ways, sometimes you have to uh, um, be perceived in one way to receive one interaction and be perceived in another. And what's interesting is the game doesn't give you a moralistic sort of lesson here. Sort of I would consider the simplistic, naive moralist way of perceiving this is, man, look how bad these people are. They're so prejudiced. It's like, well, I think more of what this is trying to say is this is how people tend to function. And I'm not trying to make any great um, uh, encomium of prejudice here, but more saying that the valuable lesson that's being taught to young people is that people seem to be rooted in their perceptions and their prejudices of things. And the truly effective individual is somebody that gathers gathers maximal information about their surroundings and learns how to interact with them in the most beneficial and rewarding way. And that that based on what Ben has said there, that actually this game is teaching uh, perhaps the most valuable lesson that a young person can learn, which I think the cliche, it takes a village, really means. I mean, when we think about that, we say kids are hard to raise, but that's not what the expression means. The expression means you need to show them that crazy uh, astronomer, you need them to know the crazy person who says far out alchemical style things like us, as well as you know, like the great athletes and the great jugglers and the great teachers, they, they need to be exposed. People need to be exposed to massive amounts of perceptions just to understand how the social world, their world works, um, would be what I initially have to say. Awesome, yeah. I, well, I like that you bring it back to the idea of it taking a village to raise a child. I think that that is a big message here in this game um, to kind of flip it around, right? Like what the skull kid lacks is a village. He, he's alone. Right. And so when he's alienated um, and, and sort of cast out by his, his, his friends, then he's really success, susceptible, that is, to, to the mask's um, pull and its temptation. And, and so I wanted to jump just to read one more thing from Ben. He has five points, but the fifth one is the relevant one here, I think. Um, it goes to what we kind of end up with at the end of the swamp chapter. And so we can kind of talk about range over everything from uh, the start of it to the, the end of it. But he says, uh, I hope you touch on the subject of the Deku Mask's identity in the coming episodes. I've always been very moved by the very slight details you get from the Deku butler about his son's disappearance into the Lost Woods. In the end credits, there's a brief shot of the butler kneeling at the twisted Deku stump you find on your way to Clocktown. It's this very stirring reminder that even your control of time cannot save everyone, that not all the characters will get a happy ending in a story, no matter how many people you help. Lastly, and most importantly, you should definitely give the Skull Kid and Majora's Mask another look. There is a lot of biblical imagery running through the game, but equating the Skull Kid with Lucifer isn't the most logical comparison. The Skull Kid isn't evil, he's mischievous. He plays pranks and that annoys people, which leads them to cast him out and leads him to feel threatened and lonely. He meets the fairies, his only friends, and does ultimately end up with the dark fairy. But reading Tale as symbolic of evil seems a bit off, too. Tale is, if anything, another innocent. Tattle, your fairy, wants to protect him. She gets angry when the Skull Kid hits Tail, and it's clear that the Skull Kid doesn't care for either of them as he pulls down the moon. With that in mind, it's very clear that the real antagonist here is the mask, not the Skull Kid. Looking forward, the first thing Majora's Mask does when the moon is stopped is get rid of its puppet, the Skull Kid. He even says that the puppet is worthless. The Skull Kid isn't evil. He's a kid who started hanging out with the wrong crowd, just like Tail and Tattle are corrupted by hanging out with the masked Skull Kid. Most of your interactions bear this out. On the one hand, the Skull Kid is scary and threatening. He commands the moon, turns you into a scrub, smacks Tail, steals your horse. But on the other, he is juvenile and silly. He laughs when he turns you into a scrub. A funny joke. He waggles his butt at you when you stare at him through the telescope. He plays with your ocarina when he steals it and hides it behind his back when you catch him. He's dangerous, but dangerous like a seven-year-old with a handgun. The mask is what makes him scary. And he too is playing a role. He wants to be tough, 
to not need people, to not feel hurt, and the mask empowers him to live that fantasy. So throughout that, the mask is capitalized. It's, it's making a distinction, I guess, between the character of the Majora mask uh, and what it represents versus uh, or, or laid over top of the skull kid and what he seems to represent. So just to put that one out there, again, there's two or rather three other big points that we'll, we'll come back to another time here. Um, but yeah, what did you think? Um, does that distinction hold up for you? Yeah, so there are just a couple things I would respond to that. First, whenever we look at figures of Lucifer, we consider Lucifer as the archetype of evil here, and that's simply the Christian and most developed representation of it. That's uh, what we're talking about are archetypes in literature, and so the figure of evil who is the antagonist is to some extent in each text or movie or game that we play, whether it be Sephiroth or Voldemort or Mephistopheles or, you know, the, the Miltonian Lucifer that I teach, which is a very Christian Protestant one, who is, I think, the more archetypally evil one. Um, we, we do strive to differentiate those, those figures. And I would say that this is far more like a Mephistopheles sort of um, uh, Lucifer than it is a Miltonian one. Um, that said, um, we do bring up Jungian psychology often and the notion of the archetypes. Well, Jung explicitly said that an archetype is something that wears you like a mask. And so I want to be careful not to A, take away individual responsibility from the mask kid. It is obviously him who makes his own choices, though he is young. B, I would say that because this is sort of a child's game, he's portrayed in sort of a humorous and innocuous way. But C, he is also bringing the moon down to destroy the world. And that is a choice he made. And something that um, Tail is quickly quick to remind us is that I can't believe that he did this based on just that small resentment that he felt. And so I see a direct connection between him and Cain, and I see a direct connection between Cain in the Old Testament and the Lucifer um, that's not in the New Testament, but is the Christian figure um, uh, as well. So I, I would say that as well. Also, just um, to to talk about the similarity between Lucifer and the trickster figure, um, it is, of course, the Odyssean hermetic figure, the Promethean figure who steals fire from Zeus in the Greek mythology and religion. He is a trickster. Um, and uh, Hermes is a trickster with Titan blood. And those are both prefigurations, so says Carl Carini as well as uh, Carl Jung of a Lucifer sort of figure. Part of what Lucifer does as a symbol for the rational intellect is he steals. He takes something that is not rightfully his. Just like Adam and Eve take knowledge, they arrogate knowledge that was that by some accounts is by nature theirs because of their innate curiosity and desire to acquire information and their ability to it, regardless of moral injunctions put on them even by God. Um, but that uh, part of what makes something punishable is the fact that it goes outside of the rules. In fact, this is explicitly what Dante has Adam say in Canto 26 of the Paradiso. He says that uh, uh, he, Adam has asked four questions by Dante, and one of them is, why were you expelled from Eden? With the background being like, how could you do injury to a perfect God? You couldn't. So it can't be out of revenge, especially if um, the reason for the resurrection is to was to uh, forgive the most unforgivable possible sin. There must be a different reason. And Adam says it's actually quite simple. It's because of his respect, God's respect for human free will that we're punished for making a choice. And so I do want to be clear that I, I, I want, or rather I do want to honor the fact that even though Skull Kid is young and uh, as Skull Kid in Clock Town, which is possibly an underworld style place, that he might just be a developmentally appropriate figure of the Luciferian or the evil. And I, I do agree that there is a difference between mischief and evil, but that here they seem to be wedded together in the same way that the hermetic Promethean figure and the Luciferian figure, even in Milton, Milton who convinces Eve, and at, Eve, especially in the form of a toad, to go outside the, the bounds of their rules, um, that he is, in fact, a, a Luciferian figure in that way, but that my uh, idea of, or the archetypal image of Lucifer is not as profoundly evil in the darkest possible way one can imagine. In fact, that there are seemingly mundane features of it as well. I do agree, though, that he is childish and that we should keep in mind that there is an influence of a mask on him, but I would say that it is his initial choice to earn the mask through violence and theft and him walking down that path that it, that I do hold him responsible for that in the same way that I would hold a Lucifer responsible or say an Adam and Eve responsible for their decisions. Awesome. Yeah. I like that distinction as well. And, and I, I really like the way that we get sort of both sides of that portrayed. Um, we see the Majora side first. And so it's easy to kind of conflate 
Skull Kid in Majora's Mask because he's wearing it when right. we first see him, right? But then uh, as we're going along, um, after we, you know, sort of have our small victory over him getting back the ocarina, you know, learning from this salesman that it's the mask that's, you know, evil and that this imp has just kind of uh, taken it from him. Well, so then we see, you know, uh, through the reminiscence of drawing the picture, which I find very interesting. It's like an, an instance of, of artistic creation within the game, which I'm always kind of curious about. Um, within that, then we see the cutscene where, you know, he's sort of playing um, because he was sad. Uh, he's very sympathetic in that way. But, right, then he, he goes too far. He takes the mask, which isn't his, which is, you know, much more dangerous than he realizes. And it seems to um, really lead him astray. Uh, and I just, in passing, I just really like the thought that there is some kind of pun on the way that he like spanks his butt at you. It's like a mooning action, right? In English, uh, we say mooning. And it's like the moon, yeah, get it? Right? I don't know if that if that's there in Japanese or if they're kind of trying to play with that in, in English or, or what, but but I find that kind of awesome. Um, so I I also think like the playfulness of it is so, so key because like the entire game, right, is structured in one sense as a, uh, you know, you're trying to set right something that has, has been obviously gone wrong. But on the other hand, the action of setting it right is where the fun comes in. Like that's what makes the game interesting is because you have to, you know, solve all these problems. And so there's a, a deep sense, really maybe not that deep, maybe kind of simple, but like you don't get to have the story without the evil. And so the evil in yes. some sense is like intrinsic to the play and to the fun and to the, the learning that you that takes place through that learning about good and evil in a safe environment right of of the game so I, I find that all very very cool like you know skull kid has done a bunch of stuff that um leads you to learn about your powers like he puts that balloon there you have to learn how to pop it with your bubbles he uh he steals pieces of the fairy so you have to like really solve a lot of challenging little puzzles to get all the fairies back and and return them to the great fairy right so that she can grant you your next your next ability um it's 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 interesting the ways that you know the dungeons are laid out such that you're able to defeat them right like they they're structured to teach you how to get better and to teach you how to uh proceed in in sort of gaining you know experience quote unquote right and, and so I, I just think that that's all kind of built into that one little action there um and again this the sympathy that you feel towards the character, I think makes this a, a, a more interesting experience. And, and I like what you say about all of the complexity of the, the, uh, the bad guy archetype. Yeah, while you say all that, that makes me think so much about um, Final Fantasy VII and the fact that Sephiroth's negative actions are what allow uh, Cloud to eventually find himself and to become far more powerful than Sephiroth ever was, and of course, by joining a team as well, and individually, as well as Harry Potter becoming the hero, the chosen one he is, precisely because of the actions of Voldemort. Um, but I want to touch on the other thing that um, Ben talked about, the Deku mask. And uh, what's interesting is it's making me think, because I haven't gone through the game in the way that you guys have, and so perhaps I will, I will make mistakes, I will certainly make mistakes along the way, but it makes me think that perhaps one of the things the butler likes about you, and I need to follow him because I've tried to follow him several times now, and I haven't gotten to the end of that very difficult uh, puzzle, oh, even with the bunny, so I would say. Isn't it hard? Um, but um, that it's almost as if the mask you have is like the sole remnant of the dead Deku, which is the son of the butler, and that he sees that that kid in you and that you act very similarly to him or even look like him in sort of a creepy way. Um, I just wanted to mention uh, that as popping into my head when you and Ben's um, message uh, talk about the Deku scrub, but also just it's so interesting. You only get, at least so far with the five masks I have, the animation of putting on the mask and taking it off with the Deku mask. And it does seem to be a horrible reduction and also sort of like um, uh, very much against your will, right? When you first were running away from the spirit of the Deku, you were running from it and it overtook you. And even now you sort of scream in horror. And just as a corollary to that, I wanted to mention the use of sound in this game. Um, three times I've really been, four times I've really been struck by it, maybe five. The mask salesman's laugh, which I brought up last time, the kind of uh, horrific, grotesque laugh of the, the, 
the sort of horrific, grotesque, uh, great fairy, uh, the ha 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 when she appears and disappears, um, as if she is that which accompanies mirth. But also um, the, the, the crying of Skull Kid, when we see that cutscene you talked about, when we first see his art with, I, I forget whether our fairy is tail or tattle. I think it's tail, right? Or is it tattle? Um, I'm pretty sure it's tattle, yeah. It's tattle. Okay, it's tattle. And that he's, he's really sobbing. And <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's hard to listen to. But um, then also in the, in the first dungeon, the woodfall that we see, um, there is a, the music in the Woodfall Temple is like, it, it's like a scream. It's, it's very, very creepy and hard to, to play to. And so um, just the, the use, because our character doesn't have any dialogue himself, the use of those sounds I find so fascinating. <clears throat> just as something to go down after talking about the Deku mask a little, this first mask that we get, that we have put on us is as if, it, it is in some way a representation of the first perceptions that people have of us that uh, they project onto us that we don't have the opportunity to perfectly tailor or something like that. What, what do you do with that? Oh yeah, that's, I mean, it's very, very interesting. I did notice the um, little stump guy. It's the first thing that you have to, to focus on with your Z targeting. It's like a very brief tutorial about how to do that. And so you're kind of encouraged to check it and maybe be curious about it. And then I think it is it is right to probably put it together with the butler having lost his son um, to sort of make that connection. If uh, if it's not clear at first, then you do see it at the end of the game. And sorry to make that little spoiler there, but um, but I think that there's also something to be said about the uh, the kind of uh, chasing that you have to do with the butler. It is probably the most difficult thing that you've been, you know, challenged by so far in the game. Um, but it bears a close resemblance to following the little monkey guy uh, yes. in the Lost Woods area, right? And so you're following him along. It's also a lot like the very first tutorial um, where you're like, you know, trying to chase the Skull Kid, although he's a good bit further ahead of you. It's not, there's not quite that um, same urgency in the gameplay, but there is in, in terms of the narrative of the you know, the, the story um, that you're given, like you're chasing him hard, as hard, as fast as you can. Uh, he just happens to be that much faster than you, right? And so with, with the butler, it's real frustrating because you'll get close a bunch of times and then you'll, you'll hit a new trap that he's um, able to just glide past with his little uh, Mary Poppins umbrella, right? But you, <laughs> you're following him on foot. Um, and, uh, and when you do finally catch up at the end, he apologizes and says, you know, I, I made, made it too difficult, but I just got carried away because you're just, it's like playing with my son when we used to race, you know. And, and so, again, you have this kind of sympathy for your quote-unquote villain character there, um, you know. Anyway, but, but I think, you know, it's interesting, too, because he gives you a, the prize you get for that is a piggy mask um, that will sniff out truffles in the woods which is what the witch mentions, right? If, if she could only get some uh, mushrooms, she could make a better potion or whatever. Um, so it's like there's multiple ways in which that sort of gameplay element uh, correlates back to a previous one, which correlates back to a narrative one, right? About this lost child who's turned into a tree. Um, and that's, I think it's something like what you're saying about like putting on the mask, right? It's a kind of um, shock to, to, change in that way um it's not as you know static of course as what happens to the this the child who gets turned into a tree right which presumably is something that that skull kid did right to him in that in that moment um but anyway it's it is pretty harrowing um the the kind of laughter right the way that laughter gets coded as like frightening um is is really disturbing in a way too, um, because you know the characters that you hear laugh are are sort of you know mighty um, or at least mysterious and and powerful. Um, they but they want to it seems they want to play with you right they want to have fun, um, and so you know as the player that's what you're doing too. In some way you're sort of like implicit in in that is like your your agency too right. Um, so that's. It, it creates a certain amount of, of texture uh, to what otherwise is just, um, you know, a straightforward good versus evil kind of story. So I, I do think it makes it a, a good deal more interesting here. Um, the ways that the gameplay 
leads you to think and uh, and make connections. The ways that um, the sound uh, helps you sort of see more of the themes of the story. Um, just like immerses you in in the activity of playing, but also makes you sort of uncomfortable with the activity of playing, right? In all sorts of ways. I think that another example of that is the the boss of that that swamp dungeon or temple, right? He's a um, He's got a really creepy um, sort of almost like a rusty gate sound that he does as his laughter um, that kind of rasps back and forth as he dances around and, you know, he slashes at you with this um, long blade that you can't, I mean, if he were like playing seriously, right, you would never get close to him. It's only because he sort of prances and dances around that you have a chance. Uh, it's almost like he's letting you in, you know, again, um, there's many different ways to approach that. Uh, I know you had <laughs> some thoughts about sort of the, the way that that's a, 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 a bit of offensive uh, representation of, of like a, a primitive um, mask wearing sort of ritual that you might, you know, actually have like a lot of, of ritualistic importance um, in, in real world terms. Right. But, but I also think like the way, way that you are, invited to uh, see that as, you know, not, not entirely serious effort on his part to fight you um, is, is just, it's unsettling. It's weird. Uh, it's kind of, again, like makes you reflect a little bit uh, in the midst of this challenging part of the game on, on what it is you're up to. Um, and, and particularly if you have to do it more than once, which you probably will throughout the course of the game. Yeah, and I certainly did. I, that actually brings up a cluster of thoughts to me that I want to mention and also touch on the, the theme that Ben brought up about um, sort of prejudice and misperception because the reason that we first go into the Woodfall Temple is, of course, because um, this monkey, uh, this primate, is, being, is because of prejudice by this Deku king who flies off the handle quickly and needs to get beaten up by his daughter afterwards, beaten back into shape. Um, uh, sort of like Alkanoas with Nausicaa, but, uh, you know, if Alkanoas were a poor father rather than a good one or a poor king rather than an astute one, um, is that this king, this, this monkey is being blamed for something he didn't do. And so I, I consider the poisoned water in the, in, uh, the swamp as sort of a metaphor for the poison perception or the poison relationship between these uh. two types of beings, right? You have to clear the waters between them so that the light can shine through so that they can see themselves appropriately because something has gone wrong and immediately somebody has jumped to conclusions and wants to punish somebody for this. And that does seem to be our initial inclination as either dekus or primates or humans, right? We want vengeance over justice at first. And it actually takes quite a bit more work to get actual justice than it does to get vengeance, but we'll often settle for vengeance if we just make our gut, um, e or we follow our gut emotional initial reaction. And um, so I did want to mention that I, I started seeing that as you were speaking, but I also wanted to mention you were talking about how things are getting more complex rather than simply simplistically when we are in the temple. We reach a room with several of, I think they're called uh, black bows, the evil amorphous spirit demons that are very easy to kill, but often attack you in mass in Ooh. dark little areas. Yeah. It's almost as if they are themselves metaphors for the dark recesses or corners of your mind where little demons that you have not dealt with amass um, clean your room, everybody. But that uh, you reach a room that is actually, you're told by Tattle, so, and funny that her name is Tattle, right? From an onomatopoeia sort of perspective, she's tattling to you. She tells you additional information that, yeah. um, that and she brings light to situations, um, is that you are entering a room full of evil. And just mentioning that in the idea of a sacrifice unjustly of this, this monkey to appease the anger of the king and the idea of Odalwa shown in this sort of tribal ritualistic masked way, which does have some meaning for me having just gotten back from Fiji where they did uh, by the own account of our, our good friend Sorelli, who was our tour guide there. Um, they were cannibals in the South Pacific. Uh, it was the coming of the British and Christianity that made, that showed them a new way of being. In fact, Sorelli was, <laughs> Uh, I hope he listens to this because he explicitly said that had he been born a hundred years ago, he probably wouldn't still be around. 
and they do sell tribal masks there in the gift shops. Um, and so that's sort of very interesting. And yes, I did notice that Adalwa, we would, I do not think we would be able to get away with putting a figure like him into a game nowadays. Somebody would, you know, the PC police would bite somebody's head off, the game publisher's head off. You know, they'd probably be boycotting every game spot or something like that. But I also agree with, so I think there's a layer of complexity. Why is it so evil there? Is there a notion of evil sacrifices having been made there? Is, this, is there an evil spirit to the place? Because this is something that has perpetually happened, that has happened many times. Are there, is there information that we cannot yet grasp there? We're just moving through the game in our sort of childlike way, just going place to place. But there's this undertone, this undercurrent, uh, this poisoned undercurrent of profound evil. And, and he, as you mentioned, he dances and he makes a ring of fire. It's like you are entering a, a room of unjust sacrifice where countless people have been killed before. Um, yeah, so that's what I, that's just what I wanted to sort of touch on, not pinpoint quite yet. Oh yeah, that's, that's very interesting about the, I think about the, the monkey and the princess. There's a there's a, almost a Romeo Juliet thing going on there too, where yes. part of part of the king's anger is that you know this monkey right has right. Has, has kidnapped the princess right his daughter. Um, that's just not right. This this outsider, and and there's also this element too uh, that that makes it worse is that the monkey like knows that something's wrong and is trying to to fix it. Um, he's the one who teaches you the song, which he learned from the princess, right? It's the yeah. only way that you're able to access that place in, in the first place is because you have the, the song of awakening. So that's the first of your um, sort of like locality songs. You've now got, of course, the uh, song of time, which like links you back to Zelda, which makes this a, you know, a Zelda game, um, even though she hardly appears in it, um, which is crucial. You can't possibly, you know, pr have any chance of doing this uh, in just in just three days, unless you can replay over and over, which is the power of, of play, right? Um, to to iterate, it's great. Right. It's a great little like built-in metaphor. And so you got that. You can play it backwards, as you mentioned. You can you can uh, invert the song of time, and that gives you more time within the time uh, that you iterated, right? So that you can accomplish more at one go, um, which is fascinating. And this is that's the scarecrow who gives you that hint um, when he talks talks about, you know, you want to dance with me to, to pass the time, you know, play it double time. Or if you want to slow down, then play it backwards. Um, and anyway, uh, now you've also got the Song of Healing, right, which allows you to um, remove the mask and put it back on at will. And, and you'll be using that throughout the game to, to gain more of the masks that do that, that transformation um, graphic on you, uh, as opposed to the ones you just simply wear. Um, and so the uh, Song of Awakening... Also, you get, as you're close to there, you get the song of soaring here, too, from the owl. So you're really, like, right. um, getting a bunch of, of new, you know, bits in your repertoire uh, of music that you can play here. Uh, you, you also get the oath to order at the end of the dungeon, right? So that you can, you can call to these, um, these giants when you need them. And so, yeah, I think there is something to that that feeling that this place is deeply evil, but I, I would agree that that's because of something that, that has changed, that has gone wrong. And that's down to, again, ultimately the mischief of the Skull Kid, which is being perverted or passed through the sieve of the, uh, the mask, right? This very evil ancient um, tribe would use it in their hexing, right? So it's, it's like this um, much older and much more dangerous kind of, of uh, mischief, so to speak, like on a much grander scale, um, but that, but that underneath of that, there is the the sort of good or, or benevolent, you know, spirit of this of this place, um, which is like embodied in in the songs, um, which can be um, brought together to stave off right the ultimate cataclysm of of the moon coming down. Um, right. So that you you sort of are like yeah go. I just wanted to say that you're just making a connection, like the evil overlay with uh, the thing that is better inside of it just reminds me of Darth Vader and what we see at the end of his time and Spirited Away of the mud demon that's actually a dragon. And then ultimately about what Ben was saying with Skull Kid to himself that like 
what you see is that, uh, and something that's mentioned about the temple is that the deity is gone, right? This, this is also in the Nazi inversion of the Hindu um, a swastika symbol too, right? That there's a corruption or an overlaying, an impurifying of something that is supposed to stand in, like an overarching idea that is in some way um, uh, twisted or turned. And that, that, that what is evil is not so much the creation of something new or just doing something that is quote unquote bad, but that it is a, a twisting or an obscuring or a, a turn, uh, yeah, something, uh, there's a better word than twisting, um, a more damning word than that, that I should be using, um, a perverting, that's the word I'm looking for, of that which is already there. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's, I think that there's um, a great element of that in, in the form of, you know, you're um, fighting against evil uh, as it sort of manifests in all these places, then will, you know, reveal the true sort of underlying good of those places. So once you defeat the masked uh, guardian, you know, then you free the guardian and you, you, remove the poison from the water right now you can now it's fresh again and and you reunite uh, the princess with her father and you free the monkey you know so it's like you accomplish not like so much a, a new thing in the world but a, a restoring of what is is ultimately true about that place right that has been corrupted um but only momentarily right and and only Again, sort of only in so far as as it will be possible for you to set right, because that's the nature of the game, which is helpful. I don't know that you know things are always that way, and I think Ben's point about the the butler's son is a good one. That there are some things that can't be corrected within the frame of the game or the story. Um, that that's important to remember because there's you know if you if you study like enough of a subject, you find that there's there's certain insoluble problems within that subject, whatever it might be. That that's sort of the proof that you're you're really getting deeply into it. That you can see that there's limits on what you're going to be able to accomplish with it. Um, I think that's just the nature of it. So uh, the last the last element I wanted to be sure to touch on today was the uh, the bow, right? The mechanics of the bow and and having that ability to shoot arrows from a distance. I know that's a great you know sort of entree to some some epic thoughts. I'm sure, um, but. I, I just, I'm also curious about how you thought that adds, you know, a layer of complexity to, to the gameplay in, in the case of, um, you know, as opposed to just blowing bubbles, now you can shoot arrows. Well, I mean, yeah, just a couple of classical references before engaging that. Of course, that's what Odysseus has to do in order to prove his strength and accuracy, his uh, sort of a metaphor when he changes from um, sort of from beggar back to king is his ability to show his guided strength or his ability to to first string the bow and then shoot the bow. That in order to be a great leader, you must be strong and have direction and have the endurance necessary or the perseverance necessary to get where you're going. Also in the Aeneid, that's the first thing that we see Aeneas capable of doing in book one. He kills seven stags, themselves a kingly animal with their antlers as crowns, as we've talked about in our Harry Potter podcast with James and Harry's uh, Patronus, which of course mean, comes from the word father, pater being um being a stag and so so arrows are are big and of course uh, that's one of the very first similes that dante uses in the paradiso like a bow or like an arrow being shot from a bow which he uses the uh, literary device hysteron proteron in order to show us that uh, the thing that happens first happens last the thing that happens last happens first but uh the bow is an interesting gift of the magi at first on the one hand it it is extremely useful on the other hand it it you do have a finite set of arrows and it is hard to shoot with the bow even when you z target with it and you do immediately have to use it to shoot some eyes and to do some sophisticated things that without a, a study or a, a guidebook I, I would have had trouble figuring out you have to shoot um through you have to shoot your bow through some fires uh, two fires i believe uh two fiery torches in order to light other torches and so just an interesting element here uh again with the purifying element we don't just have the water the baptismal sort of poison water becoming clear water we also have the bringing light to darkness metaphor in here too and also the sort of purgatorial idea that when you bring light to a place there are fewer dark corners to hide in and um that there's an element of things are better when there is less room to hide there. Um, 
but I liked that I could kill bugs that bugged me when I was floating through the air as a Deku scrub. I thought it was interesting that the <laughs> Deku can, cannot use the uh, bow and arrow, only US Link can do that. And that, in fact, there's a boss, the annoying toad boss who rides on a, a swirling uh, <laughs> a turtle where you, you actually have to be a Deku first, then change back to a human and shoot him with your arrows. And so um, I, I thought... It was interesting that you got your bow and arrow so soon in this game. I, I feel like it takes longer, substantially longer in the Ocarina of Time to uh, to get outfitted. Maybe maybe it just felt that way when I was younger. Everything felt like it took more time. Um, but um, I just wanted to make those classical references, which you knew were coming, but also uh, mention that it, yeah, but mention what I mentioned. What do, what do you see there? Oh, yes, uh, absolutely, yeah. I. I love the um, mechanic of of shooting the arrow through the fire. Um, there's there's lots of ways that the bow is um, you know adapted to other purposes besides just hitting things from a distance, right? There's there's so much more that you uh, end up using it for. Um, in the original Zelda uh, on the Nintendo system, um, it's like the key item because you have to get the silver arrow. That's the only thing that can hurt uh, the final boss of that game, Ganon in his uh, pig form, so pigs again. But, but yeah, I think there's, there's something clearly like mystical about you know, being able to shoot from a distance. It's, it's not unlike you know, spitting the bubbles might sort of in a playful way um, allude to it as well, right? It's like words. That's another of the classical references that I wanted to be sure to bring up, right? That, that words are winged. Um, that they speed like arrows, right? That they they fly and can wound, of course. You know, Cupid's got his arrows. Uh, and that's what makes uh, love interesting after all, right? So it, it's like there's so many ways in which um, the bow can be used. And I love that the game incorporates that, right? You use the bow to, to shoot and solve puzzles, but also to um, light things on fire, uh, to open up new areas, um, and ultimately, right to to inflict um, the kind of the kind of uh, coup de gras uh, of of the classic Zelda game. Um, it it can only happen through through use of the uh, the silver arrow again. Um, I think you know of of the uh, the far shooter Apollo or Artemis, right? The Huntress um, with that with that image of kind of the sun and moon. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, like as um, she is literally called the Lady of the Silver Bow, and the bow is shaped like a crescent moon, like you said, and she works at night, um, like a figure of Mother Nature. And it's so interesting because, like you said, just I'll, I'll let you get right back to it, but even in Dante, there are two keys to heaven that are held by Peter. One is gold and his power. Of course, one is silver, and that's reflection. Far out, yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm glad that we have made it through the first uh, big sort of section of the game now that we are out of Clocktown and able to explore the world. So the Southern Swamp came first. So next time for the mountain, um, I think we can, again, sort of cover a lot of that, at least in one episode. Um, I think that Ben suggested that between the mountain and the sea, that we pause to explore the town a little bit more. Um, I'll check on okay. that. It's it's uh, it's definitely a part of the game that we need to go back to. Um, is all the you know all the characters and all their stuff going on. Um, but I th think yeah that again we should we should go onto the mountain for next time and explore that. Um, so yeah, I don't. I think that we got around to pretty much everything. I was really really interested in talking about. Um, I'm I'm excited to see what you think of uh, uh, as the as the challenges mount. Uh, if you're uh, able to to keep up with them and keep um, improving your skill with each of these these new items and these new um, mask abilities, I, I'll do my best to manage the complexity of it. I'm giving my best to this game, and hopefully, I'm not so much of an old fogey, so unfun as our friend Vincent Reese would say, quoting Adventure Time, that I can't that I can't muster up the ability to do it. Um, I'll do my best. And yeah, so get to the mountain for next time. And I imagine that means we're going to be meeting some Gorons. You are astute. Yes, indeed, indeed. Well, awesome. Uh, thanks again.
Thank you. Wonderful conversation as usual and looking forward to Harry Potter this week. Ah, yes, for the listeners to multiple of our episodes and also yours specifically, uh, I believe you are having your final episode on Twitch on the Golden Compass this oh, yeah. Tuesday at 4.30 p.m. Um, Pacific Standard Time, is it? Pacific Time, West Coast Time. The current, yeah, the current 4.30 uh, on the Pacific Coast. So, yeah, thanks for mentioning that. It's um, live on Twitch, but if you can't make it then, uh, that's fine too. Just, you know, send any questions or comments about Golden Compass, about Philip Pullman, about the new show that's coming out or the new book that's coming out or or just any questions about demons and dust, which is my uh, perennial sort of point of, of fascination with those books. I, I just, and the story of the fall, which, you know, we've always come back to. It's like that, that's such a great retelling of that story. I, I never tire of talking about it. So yeah, excited. Well, I can't wait to hear it. And I hope to hear it live at that time and to pepper some questions and especially ask you about the fall and how that's a, the golden compass is a retelling of it. That'll be fascinating to hear about, but if I don't he hear it, then I will hear it right after those of us though, or those of our listeners who listen on the East coast, I think will have a, uh, a very good time, seven thirty to hear it or six thirty if they're in central time. And that'll be wonderful. Um, but yeah, I, I think that'll be great. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Hopefully I can hear it live. Hopefully all our listeners here go and listen to it live for their chance to have sort of a seminar with you as well. Also, I'll bring this up when you're back with Sarah, but um, the if the listeners want a real treat, they should listen to our most recent conversation at the Leaky Cauldron where you and Sarah went to NorwestCon 42 and gave uh, a seminar. I mean, people were fired up and very interested in that your method of conducting that um, conference discussion. And, you know, I've been to a lot of conferences now, and it is not always the case that people will get off their cell phones and actually listen to what it is you have to say. And people seemed... I don't know. It seems like uh, people were amped up to hear y'all and the method that you were using to engage them and with the text. Oh man. Yeah, that was so fun. Um, such a great group of uh, people that, that showed up for that. Um, really appreciated getting to do that with Sarah there. And yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really good introduction actually to kind of a lot of what we're doing on these podcasts and what we've gotten to do over the years. It's, uh, you know, I feel very grateful for that. Um, and hope that it's, yeah, exciting for people and sort of um, gets them interested in, in doing something similar. Well, looking forward to paying it forward because these, these have been wonderful experiences and happy to share what it is I find and to share it with you and to share it with Sarah and to share it with our ever growing, but small and, uh, but small and rich community at this point. Yes. yes. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. All right. Till next time. See ya.